This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Good morning, Claudia. It's Cher calling from Italy, Pietrasanta, where I live. Um, food memories. My foodie story began back when I was a kid in the 1960s. The story I wanted to share was one where I went to visit my grandmother for her birthday. Hello, this is Tanner from Los Angeles. My name is L.A. I'm a big fan of the podcast and happy to share one of my favorite memories as it pertains to food. Here on If This Food Could Talk, we've worked to bring you food history that comes alive. From the U.S. Navy's obsession with ice cream to fermentation practices that date back thousands of years. But we also know that food history isn't always in the distant past. It's ever-present in the small and intimate moments of our lives. In other words, food history is personal history. That's why we asked for your food stories. And boy, did you deliver. From your best meals to your worst, your memories range from hilarious to nostalgic to delicious. Breakfast, tomato sauce with thyme and a little bit of sugar. My mom was the worst cook on earth. The first thing we would always do is make a lot of popcorn and put a ton of M&Ms in it. I could feel the enchiladas like burning like down my throat. They still come to me and ask me about roasted duck curry. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. Today, we turn the mic on you. We'll hear from grandmothers, celebrity chefs, world travelers, and to start, a special surprise, my own mom, coming right up after the break. You better not be crying already. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my mom, Camelia, is very proud of me and this show. And as I thought about all of my food memories and where my deep love of cooking and sharing meals comes from, it all points to one place. It's my mom. Okay, what's your name? Camelia Hanna. Mom, where were you born? I was born in Cairo, Egypt. The food in Egypt deeply influenced my mom and ultimately influenced me. But it wasn't all just traditional Egyptian foods like falafel or kebabs. Can you describe to us what Cairo was like growing up in the 50s and 60s? Very nice, to be honest with you. Very peaceful. Because we used to have all the different cultures in our country. You have the French, you have the English, you have the Greek, you have the Italian, you have Jewish, you have everybody in our country. It sounds very cosmopolitan. It was. Do you remember if the food was any different? Oh, yeah, of course. We're going to hear two food stories from my mom. One right now about her childhood, and one a little later that was a staple of mine. So my mom came from a big family. She was one of 11 children. I was number seven. Oh, lucky seven. To feed and care for 11 children, my grandmother, or Teta as we called her, 
led the family with military precision. She literally had set breakfast hours where the kids could come to the kitchen and serve themselves. And what dish do you make to feed 11 kids? A simple, shareable meal that defined my mom's childhood and now has a special place in my home as well. Always, always in the morning, every day, this grain, belila, what you call it. Belila is wheat berries. Wheat, wheat berries, yes. Mom, she have it for us. What? A big, big, big pot with the milk and sugar in it, okay, and cinnamon. Okay, so Tita made the breakfast. She cooked this meal only. <laughs> only this one. <laughs> only this one. All right, how did she make it? Okay, she soaked it overnight. She put it in the stove with a little bit of water for half an hour. Then milk. Oh. Full, full, full milk. Full fat. Uh, full fat. We used to have the milkman. He come to us every early morning, mm. early, early morning, by six or be, even before. And he come to, to us from the cow, fresh, mm. and give it to you, mm. you know? And if it's still warm and the flavor is so different, okay? Then she sweet it with sugar and honey and cinnamon and leave it on the stove for all of us. And each one of us can go and help himself. That's our breakfast. Mom and her siblings grew up in an apartment in Cairo. Their kitchen wasn't very big, and I can just picture all of my 10 aunts and uncles, kids at the time, of course, clamoring over a pot of hot cereal for breakfast. Think of Belila as oatmeal or cream of wheat, but way chewier. The berries don't break down in the milk, so you kind of slurp, kind of chew, and it fills your belly right up on a cold winter morning. Mom mentioned all of the culinary influences in Cairo in the 1950s. Greek cuisine is one of the biggest. That's why I loved getting this voice memo from one of our former guests, Diane Kouchilis. She tells us a story about learning to make a dish that embodies everything she loves about Greek cooking. I'm Diane Kouchilis. I'm the host of My Greek Table on public television. A dish that's important to me, one dish, that's really hard. I love so much about Greek cooking. But I'd say I have a dish I return to again and again for all sorts of occasions. It's hortopita, or greens pie. When I was in my very early 20s, I moved to Greece, and I made this for the first time. I made my own phyllo pastry without ever having seen it done or learned it from anyone. And I know this might sound a little presumptuous, but it's like I just knew how to do it. It was in my bones. It was in my DNA. And I filled it with so many of the greens I had discovered and then learned to pick them wild myself on Ikaria, where I'm from. And that showed me how rich is the land and how little one really needs if you trust nature and you take the time to learn about it. And then that hortopita became a kind of family symbol. It became a way to nourish my family and teach them to eat something difficult for kids to embrace, greens. I can talk about everything that's the essence of Greek cooking. Seasonality, comfort, complex herbal flavors, food that is nutritious and delicious and plant-based, but most of all, love and patience as the two most important ingredients in any dish. You can find Diane's greens pie recipe that includes love and patience, along with any other recipe that was shared with us in the show notes for this episode and at our website, ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. That includes this next recipe. 
a decadent, sticky toffee pudding. I try not to tell people what's in it or they, I don't think they'd eat it. This is Kate from the UK. This particular recipe has been passed down in her family and has a surprising royal history to it. Allegedly, it's the, or was the queen mother in the United Kingdom's favorite cake recipe. Instead of hoarding this cake for herself, the queen mother used her position to turn this dessert into a gesture of goodwill and generosity across Great Britain. Her one stipulation on giving it out was that sixpence at the time, which apparently is now about 2p, so not very much, was given to charity every time the recipe was passed on to a new person. So there was no problem handing it out, but 2p had to be given to any charity, which was rather a lovely way. So the cake is what we now call sticky toffee pudding and has dates and walnuts in it and a rather decadent top which consists of brown sugar, cream, and butter. Even my kids who don't like dates love our sticky toffee pudding. And uh, with the royal roots, it's a firm favorite in our family. Perhaps this year, you could give this recipe to someone and donate a few dollars to a charity in their honor. Now, we're going to continue to travel with three short stories about dishes discovered in countries far from home. First, my friend Christina. On a visit to Turkey, a friend told her she had to try the kebabs at this one spot in the city of Bursa. It's a tiny hole-in-the-wall restaurant with a neon green entry, and it's so popular that it rents seating space in surrounding shops and the sidewalks in front of those surrounding shops. The dish we ordered and ate was called Iskander kebab. Many large pieces of lamb are very thinly sliced, and then they're placed on top of freshly made warm pita bread and served with a very generous helping of thick plain yogurt along with thick slices of tomato and, for some reason, a long green not-hot pepper. My husband and I carried our plates to a table and chairs inside a chocolate shop across the street from the restaurant because the restaurant was full. And I got to tell you, in my memory, it's the best melt-in-my-mouth meal of my life. It's Cher calling from Italy. The best I can remember is at... 17, going to Rome and having a pasta and thinking this is the best thing I've ever had in my life. I didn't know the name of it. My friend ordered it. And later I found it was spaghetti carbonara. What a treat made in heaven. If you've never had spaghetti carbonara with fresh handmade pasta, local bacon, eggs, and aged Parmesan, it truly is a dish straight from the angels. Unlike this next meal. Hi, Claudia. This is Alex. I'm sure you have plenty of stories about the best meals people have had, but I'm going to share the worst meal I think I've ever had, just to vary it up a little bit. Just going to warn everybody, I agree with Alex. This one caught me off guard. I was in Iceland about 15 years ago and being given a little bit of a culinary tour of the food in Reykjavik. And we went to a place where they had this 
cured shark meat, which I think is a national delicacy there. And it was served in chunks with little toothpicks that you pick it up with, and I tasted it, and it smelled a little bit like urine. And I asked him, well, how do you prepare this? And they said, well, the traditional way of doing it is we catch the shark, we dig a hole in the ground, we all stand around and urinate on it, then we cover it up and leave it there for a while to cure. Then later we come back and dig it up and hang it in the air to dry. So it's kind of chewy like jerky. It is one of the most god-awful things I've ever had, and I have to say that it's one of the few things I would not eat again. The good news is that they have a national schnapps in Iceland that translates to something like Black Death. So I was able to wash down the shark with a glass of Black Death, and that sort of seemed fitting at the time. Our next story, which is more appetizing, is from Nathan. It's one I can relate to as a parent. And it's also about someone who vowed to never eat a particular food again. What happened was my daughter, Violet, was four years old. And we were sitting at dinner one time and having chicken nuggets. And and this was the, the time in every parent's life that it's, it's a conversation that's always awkward for every parent. She, she looked at her chicken nuggets and, and realized that, that, that chicken comes from actual chickens. Like, oh my God, this thing was alive. And Violet was very upset, you know, kind of looked at us and started crying and said, that chicken had a mom and a dad, which kind of took away my appetite for it too, quite frankly. Nathan said Violet became a vegetarian right there at age four years old and has been one ever since, about a decade. So when it came to Thanksgiving and Christmas, instead of turkey or ham, the family started something new. So I went looking for a good vegetarian entree, and, and I found a, a recipe online for something that I thought would fit the bill. It also has a, a really, like, kind of terrible name, but it's, it's a, a nut loaf. So it's kind of like meatloaf, but with nuts. You saute an onion and you add uh, a bunch of, uh, 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 like, finely chopped mushrooms, a couple cups of, like, cashews and walnuts that are all, like, kind of finely chopped, uh, two cups of cooked brown rice, a whole bunch of cheese. I mean, like, a whole bunch of shredded cheese and some cottage cheese and a bunch of eggs, and then just teaspoon after teaspoon of whatever herbs and, and spices you want. And, and you end up with this really dense, flavorful, really delicious, nutty loaf. <laughs> So every year, you know, I, I pull out the nut loaf and I say, behold, my nut loaf. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll hear more of your food stories. And we'll hear the food story from my childhood that I swear should be made into a movie. Stay tuned. Many of you had memories of cooking with your grandparents the matriarchs and patriarchs of families passing down their family secrets, scrawled on note cards covered in buttery fingerprints. Holiday cookies, pies, Texas chili. But where do these family recipes really come from? Hello, this is Tanner from Los Angeles. So last year, for the first time, I was going to make Christmas cookies with my grandmother. It's a tradition that my grandmother has been doing for as long as I've been around. She's been doing this for, you know, at least 30 years. She always makes enough cookies for me, my brother, my parents, and my uncle, and she distributes them. It's a lot of cookies, and it takes her 
days to make them all. And one of these cookies has always been my favorite. It's this little chocolate ball, sort of moist, covered in powdered sugar. And I always thought that it was this incredible family recipe. And so last year, I wanted to help my grandma make these cookies. She's 81 now. And so I go over there thinking that I'm going to be getting some insight into my grandma's old recipes. They were going to make this chocolate ball covered in powdered sugar that she referred to as Mexican wedding cakes. But instead of a recipe known only to grandma... She pulls out a little piece of cardboard with a recipe on the back of a Lando Lakes butter box from like 1973. So my grandma lied to me by making cookies off of a Lando Lakes box. It is pretty cool to think that every recipe originated somewhere, perhaps embellished along the way or fused with other traditions and ingredients. But sometimes it is the simplest dishes that stick with us. Like this next dish for Chef Martin Yan, host of the public television show Yan Can Cook. There's so many exquisite dishes that I have the privilege to taste. They are created by some of the absolutely best chef in the world. But if you ask me for my all-time absolute, absolute favorite, the one that stays in my mind throughout not just my career, but my life, I would have to say the simple home-cooked Chinese sausage with dry mushrooms steamed and a bed of white rice in a clay pot. It is humble, nothing fancy, but embodies everything that good food is supposed to make us all feel. A clay pot rice with a steamed Chinese sausage and some mushroom was that I look forward to when I came home from school when I was a little kid in China. It was there waiting in my mom's little kitchen, but I could smell that irresistible aroma before it set foot in our house. It was home. It was comforting. It was my mom, the one person who first inspired me to step into a kitchen. And the rest, as they say, is history. There's something about the image of simple steamed rice in a clay pot that is soothing. Kind of like mom's chicken noodle soup. Something so comforting. It may just have healing properties. For me, a healing dish is a lemon and rice soup. I learned from my mother-in-law in Cyprus. But for this next listener, a homemade stew was her ticket out of the hospital. My name is L.A., and this is my food story. When I was 19, I had major surgery. It took a while to recover, and as per hospital rules, they won't release you until you can eat or digest properly. And in my case, that wasn't happening with the hospital food. So a family friend brought me doro tzibbi, or doro wood, a traditional food that is eaten in Eritrea and Ethiopia, which is essentially spicy chicken stew with hard-boiled eggs. The nurses were adamant that I do not eat that. We chose to not listen to them, and voila, that did the trick. I was released the next day. To this day, our family friend brags that her food is healing. We've heard stories about family and friends, but what about romantic love? 
For Dave from Rutgersville, Virginia, cooking was a way to try and get a girl to marry him. But first, he had to learn his way around the kitchen. My mom was the worst cook on earth. I knew I could do better. Dave taught himself to cook by watching TV chefs. And one day, he decided he wanted to impress a special date with a special dish, Beef Wellington. I got out a bottle of a Virginia Bordeaux blend. Wellington comes out of the oven in its puff pastry glory, perfect in the center. The puff pastry tightened perfectly around the tenderloin and the duck cells layer. I sliced it up, plated it perfectly, asparagus on the side, hollandaise in a little saucepan, and the wine. The Wellington was memorable. Did she marry him? Well, not yet. After eight or nine or 10 or 11 or 12 other meals, she finally agreed to marry me. And that's why I'm the luckiest guy in the world, because I get to make really great things for her. Okay, one more story before we get back to my mom. We got several stories that honor those who are no longer with us. You shared that every time you make your grandmother's gnocchi, it's like she's there in the room with you. And we got this story from Roberta about squash au gratin and her sister. The recipe I'm sharing today is very special to me, and I will try not to cry too much. My older sister passed away with no warning in January of 2022. Roberta's sister, Ellie, worked at a Spanish tapas restaurant. Roberta said that she remembers the food there being delicious. Crispy and fiery patatas bravas, rich and creamy tortilla española, always enough pitchers of sangria to go around. But the best thing we ever ate there was the squash au gratin. It was so good that my sister swiped the recipe off of the chef's counter one day so that she could recreate it at home. After we made it together that year, we made it together every Thanksgiving and Christmas that we lived in the same city. It was an instant classic in our family, beloved by all who tried it. Marvelously gooey and embodying everything cozy about fall and winter food. So, grab a Kleenex if you need to. I know I do. And enjoy this wonderful squash au gratin. You can make substitutions on the squash or the cheese variety if you absolutely must. But Ellie and I always agreed that it was worth the scavenger hunt to get the right squash and the right cheese. We'd like to thank our listeners, family, and friends who sent in their memories. Now, my family has lots of food stories, but there was always one that my family told over and over again that makes me chuckle. The duck story. Do you want to tell the story about when Tata came to visit in America? My brother. We're going to leave out names here so as not to embarrass anyone or get anyone in trouble with the law. But essentially, my Tata came to visit my uncle in Queens, New York, decades ago. They were walking in a park when my uncle saw something. Yeah, he saw a duck. I think in the, it was uh, on the grass and <laughs> on the water. Was there like a lake or a pond? They thought it's a pond. Yeah, it's, it was a pond, of course. He was admiring this duck, thinking, what a beautiful animal. He loved this duck so much. <laughs> 
<laughs> then he took it. He he bent down and he took it. He just picked it up? Yes. And it didn't, like, try to bite him? I think so, maybe. He loved it. He took it. <laughs> <laughs> he was new in the country, too. He had no idea this. Is, no. He thought, it's something in the, in the ground walking. Allegedly, he thought a duck would be a great gift for his young daughter. To, to have it for his daughter to play with. You're lying, Mom. No, he took it no. as a pet? He took it just for fun, to her. But the truth is, he didn't just want a pet. He actually wanted to do it, to cook it, to eat it. It's a duck. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my mom was there. Of course. You know? So they slaughtered this poor duck. In a bathroom or something, yeah, in his, in his bathroom. He had an apartment that time at home. And, and my mom cleaned it for them. And uh, they cooked it. And they said, it is so good. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I found the duck. I got the duck from the street. It's free from... <laughs> for better or for worse... These are the stories that have shaped us. They've given us laughs through the years, recipes to pass down, and have bonded us with our loved ones. Like for me, my mom loves cooking for others so much. Do you have any idea how many fridges she has? Three. Three fridges. Yeah, why do you have three fridges? You know what, Claudia, I know you asked me this. For some reason, food for me is love to give. For for me, I know maybe other people cannot see that. And even if when I cook for my children or my grandchildren or for my neighbor or friends or whatever it is, I want to tell them I love you. That's, 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 that's in my heart. We love you too. Thank you. I love you so much. I love you too. I want to share with you how to make my grandmother's hot cereal called Belila. It is a great holiday breakfast that reminds me of where I come from. I add cinnamon, a sprinkle of nutmeg, some agave to sweeten it, and a handful of fresh pomegranate to give it a bright pop of color, some vitamin C, and a little bit of a crunch. I'll share the recipe with you on our website. As always, you can reach me at ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com and on social media at ifthisfoodcouldtalk, all one word. I'd love for you to share your food memories on social media with us. Send pics of your great recipes and tag us. Tislimadek, friends. Bless your hands this holiday season. Take care. Thank you for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Carrie Ed Harmon, Tanner Robbins, Reva Goldberg, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studio. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Jacob Lewis and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. 
Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Art for this podcast was created by Jay Nungesser. Special thanks to Legal by Cody Brown. APT, American Public Television, is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.